And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Finally, we are back to a full-length regular episode of Tratcast, a triumphalist traditional Roman Catholic podcast like no other. It's basically Novus Ordo Watch for your ears. Well, as always, there is lots going on and lots to talk about, and that's why we're going to get started right away. I hope that all of you have been able to enjoy our new mini-podcast that we started in February, Tratcast Express. We've published about a dozen or so episodes so far, and if you want to get notified of each Express podcast as it's released... Make sure you sign up for the email notifications or grab the RSS feed at tradcast.org. We're also going to link the complete episode list in our show notes so you can easily listen to any episode you may have missed. And let me tell you, it is worth it. The show notes for this episode, as for any other, can be found at tratcast.org. Just scroll down until you see a link to this show, Tratcast number 17. And now, what are we going to start with? Well, it's been four years now since the election of Jorge Mario Bergoglio as Pope Francis, and you may have noticed conservative novels ordos and the semi-traditionalists are at their wits' end with the man. While most of them still believe he's an actual true and valid pope, nevertheless, a great many of them are finally starting to see how bad of an apostate the guy really is. And they're starting to say basically the things that we told you four years ago, and for which we were heavily criticized and made fun of, and so forth. But that's okay. We don't hold grudges here. And look, don't misunderstand. Of course, it doesn't matter who figured it out first. All understanding, all knowledge is a gift of God and is the working of His grace. St. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 11, But all these things, one and the same Spirit worketh, dividing to everyone according as He will. But the point is, we don't have time to waste in this. Look at for how long Mr. Zulstorff, Father Z, tried to pull off the whole reading Francis through Benedict thing and argued that everybody was just misunderstanding what Francis really said or meant and that the media were mistranslating and, you know, all of that. We just don't have that kind of time. We don't have time to be fooling around. 
And besides, this is about souls. We can't be messing with souls. So anyway, why am I bringing this up? Why am I pointing out that what we said from the beginning about Francis has been fully vindicated? Quite simply because hopefully people will learn from this that paying attention to Novus Ordo Watch might just not be such a bad idea. Yes, people can take quite a while to sort through the mess and figure things out, and that's okay, but then maybe such people shouldn't be pundits advising us all on what we ought to think or do. See, this is the problem. The people who don't understand what's really going on nevertheless hold positions of great influence, and so many consider them credible. That is the problem. And now everyone can see what their expert analysis is really worth. And so I'm saying, folks, stop listening to the people who are really just the blind leading the blind, and start paying attention to those who, it is now evident, got it right the first time. On March 13, 2017, the day of the fourth anniversary of Francis's election, you know what happened at the Vatican inside St. Peter's Basilica? Well, I'm sure you've heard about it by now. An Anglican Vespers liturgy called Evensong was celebrated at the altar of the chair of St. Peter with the full permission of the Vatican authorities. What a tremendous sacrilege and blasphemy, a heretical liturgy conducted by laymen in clergy costumes, followers of a sect called the Church of England, which was founded by an adulterous king who couldn't get a marriage annulment from the Pope and decided to simply establish his own church. Those who opposed him, he persecuted and executed. And you know what's interesting? Almost all of the English Catholic clergy at the time, bishops and priests, went with him into schism and heresy. To my knowledge, there was only a single Catholic bishop who said, no, this isn't right, and he was martyred for it, and that's St. John Fisher. Now, St. Thomas More, too, of course, but he wasn't a cleric, he was a layman. Anyway, this abominable spectacle took place inside St. Peter's in Rome on March 13th. And if you want details, photos, and even a brief video, you can find that in our blog post that we published and that we've linked in our show notes. Now, the semi-traditionalist Fatima Center sent a number of people to Rome as part of a rapid response team to report on the sacrilege and protest it. And one of those team members was the famous remnant columnist and president of the American Catholic Lawyers Association, Christopher Ferreira. Now, Ferreira's critique of this wicked spectacle was, on the whole, right on the money. But I'd like to go ahead now and point out the contradictions to his own position that are evident, but that for some reason, most people simply don't see. So let's listen now to Mr. Ferreira here for a little bit from his video report of March 13th, which we also have linked in our show notes at tradcast.org. I'm going to give you the audio beginning at the 1 minute 19 second mark, and then I'll intersperse my comments. Here's Christopher Ferreira talking about the Anglican sect, the Church of England. That church is essentially a human organization. And because it is a human organization, it does not enjoy the protection of the Holy Ghost against error. Exactly. A human organization that does not enjoy God's protection against error and heresy. Funny, because that reminds me of another organization just like it, the Vatican II Church, whose errors and heresies, by the way, Chris Ferreira is there to report on in this video. 
That's very curious. Let's listen to some more now at the 2 minute 42 second mark. Pay close attention. Let us remember that even during the reign of John Paul II, in the document Dominus Jesus, the Magisterium teaches that those churches, so-called, which have failed to preserve valid holy orders, or the Eucharist, cannot actually be called churches in the proper sense. Did you catch that? Chris Ferreira just said that the document Dominus Jesus was an exercise of the Catholic magisterium, and he quotes it to make his point about the fact that the Church of England isn't even a church. Now, this is really interesting because in his book, The Great Facade, originally published in 2002 and republished in a new edition in 2015, Ferreira devotes an entire chapter to criticizing the document. Let me quote from the 2015 edition. Chapter 13 is entitled, Dominus Jesus, an Ambiguous Answer to Heresy. I'm quoting from pages 253 to 254. Ferreira says, quote, Dominus Jesus delivers whopping roundhouse blows at these straw men, but nary a jab at the most subtle error in post-conciliar thinking. Not that all religions are equal, but rather that all religions are good enough for salvation, given the proposed action of God's grace through all religions. Instead of refuting that proposition, which renders actual membership in the Catholic Church irrelevant to salvation, Dominus Jesus announces the commencement of a vast theological project to demonstrate that other religions, i.e. all religions, participate more or less in the one mediation of Christ, whether or not their followers know it. And uh, then he quotes the document, and he continues. Accepting Cardinal Ratzinger's invitation, the neo-modernists can now recycle their pan-religious heresies by the simple expedient of incorporating the phrase participation in the unique mediation of Christ, or something equivalent. Thus, the religion of Islam, which explicitly rejects the unique mediation of Christ, could be said to participate in that mediation to the extent that it contains what Dominus Jesus calls positive elements. But how is the invited thesis different from Karl Rahner's anonymous Christianity? Some may see in this aspect of Dominus Jesus what lawyers call a distinction without a difference. Unquote. So, this is the document that Ferreira calls a part of the Catholic magisterium, and then, of course, he goes and cherry-picks those things in it that he likes and that are suitable for the point he's arguing. Now, I know how this works. Ferreira is going to say, Hey, look, in the video I said even Dominus Jesus acknowledges that the Church of England is not a church. Well, that's very nice, but since the document is loaded with heresy and other errors— why do you claim that the Catholic magisterium is exercised in that document? Now, if you didn't catch it the first time, here is that part of the audio again. In the document Dominus Jesus, the magisterium teaches... Ferreira says, in the document Dominus Jesus, the magisterium teaches. So, it's obviously a magisterial document, according to him. The magisterium speaks through it. That's what he claims in that video. Why does he make that claim? Well, that's easy. He makes that claim because he needs to. 
See, he needed to give that heretical document some veneer of authority because he was using it to slam the Anglicans, and it just sounds so much better if you can say, the Catholic magisterium says, as opposed to, this filthy heretical rag says. Especially when the author of the document is Joseph Ratzinger, the man Chris Ferreira has been telling us since 2005 was the great restorer of tradition. But that's another can of worms. By the way, in the March 2003 edition of its publication, CC No No, the Society of St. Pius X, which Ferreira has defended for many years, says this about Dominus Jesus, quote, All this is absurd and incoherent and represents the negation of the truth of divine and Catholic faith according to which only the Catholic Church is the one true Church of Christ, immutable and faithful through the centuries, outside of which there is no salvation, unquote. In other words, it says the document is heretical, and it is. But for Chris Ferreira, it's part of the Catholic magisterium, which at the same time we must resist, except those portions, of course, that we can use against Anglicanism. This bizarre position, which basically and very conveniently considers a putatively magisterial document to be non-magisterial wherever what it teaches is false is exemplified in the Great Facade. Regarding Dominus Jesus, on page 305, Ferreira says it contains, quote, ambiguous non-doctrinal commentary interspersed among points of infallible doctrine, unquote. But then, on page 351, Ferreira writes, quote, When it comes to certain liberals, few and far between, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has indeed identified specific theological errors and then formally condemned those errors in binding doctrinal pronouncements, such as Cardinal Ratzinger's Dominus Jesus, unquote. And there it is. You see, Dominus Jesus contains binding doctrinal pronouncements when Chris Ferreira needs them. See, folks, this is why Catholicism is in such bad shape, because for decades this kind of lawyerly pseudo-theology has been offered to people as the great antidote to the modernism of Vatican II. It's no wonder that things are only getting worse. For the semi-traditionalists like Ferreira, John Venari, Michael Madd, John Salza, and so forth, the Catholic Church can crank out a magisterial document, and it can contain all sorts of errors and heresies, and then these gentlemen simply proclaim that those parts aren't binding and aren't really magisterial because, after all, they're false. Well, that's not how the Catholic magisterium works. And if you look up Catholic teaching about the magisterium from before Vatican II, obviously, you won't find that in there. Obviously, whether or not something qualifies as magisterial cannot depend on whether it's true or false. That can't be the condition, because that would involve circular reasoning. After all, it is the magisterium, Latin for teaching office, that teaches us the faith and what is true and false in matters of religion. So to use the criterion of truth or falsity against the magisterium makes no sense. It's a bit like arguing that you cannot accept the particular church teaching because your conscience objects. Well, your conscience is formed by church teaching, not the other way around. Let me use a simple analogy to illustrate the absurdity here. We know the church is our mother. Now imagine a mother making a cake for her child and saying, 
don't worry, this cake is entirely healthy. There's nothing in it that's bad for you. And then it turns out that there is rat poison in the cake. All right? The child eats, gets deathly ill, and has just enough time to call an ambulance. As the child is put into the ambulance, he asks his mother, But mom, what did you do? You assured me that this cake was fine to eat. The mother, with a cynical smile on her face, responds, Oh, the poisonous elements were optional. You didn't need to eat those. They weren't binding. And besides, because they were poison, they weren't really part of the cake. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you think? Is that the kind of mother the church is? Is that the kind of mother that God has given us in the church? That's not a mother. It's a monster. Besides, any assurance that such a mother doesn't really give poison to her children because any poison is by that very fact alone not to be eaten would be a most cynical mockery that only adds insult to injury. Now, I know what the standard response from the recognize and resist traditionalists is at this point. They say, well, if you were right on that, then that would mean that every act of the magisterium is infallible, and then there would be no more distinction between the ordinary and the extraordinary magisterium. That, at least, is a very common objection. Now, we don't have enough time here to get into all the detail about this, but in a nutshell, here are the facts. Just because a church teaching isn't infallible doesn't mean it can contain heresy or that it can contradict what the church has already clearly taught in the past. That has nothing to do with being infallible. It has everything to do with being credible. An organization that contradicts its own constant teaching, even to the point of contradicting infallible definitions, is not credible. Forget infallibility. This is at a much more basic level. Such an organization has no credibility and cannot be taken seriously by any reasonable person. And that brings us full circle. Remember that at the beginning of the video, Ferreira criticized the Anglicans for having a church that is not protected by the Holy Ghost from error because it is a merely human organization. Well, what a perfect description of the Vatican II Church. This is effectively confirmed even by Ferreira himself in the same video as he criticizes his own church for the errors of ecumenism. At the same time, though, he abrades the Anglicans for not converting to that very church. One more soundbite from Chris Ferreira's video, and then we'll move on. As Pius XII taught in Mystici Corporis, as the Church has always taught, the mystical body of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church are one and the same thing. There is no mystical body of Christ outside the visible Catholic Church. Yeah, the problem though, Mr. Ferreira, is that your church does not teach that. In other words, your church does not even claim to be identical to the mystical body of Christ. It merely claims that the mystical body exists in it, and that it exists also, although not fully, in other religions. Why, sir, do you keep insisting that a church that does not even teach that it alone is the true Church of Jesus Christ nevertheless is the true Catholic Church. Oh, and by the way, if your church hasn't taught a particular doctrine in over 50 years, you cannot say the church has always taught. Nuh-uh. 
can't do it. That's over. The Catholic Church has always taught the truth, but certainly not the Vatican II Church. So don't give me that line of the Church has always taught if at the same time you're identifying the modernist Vatican II sect with the Church. By the way, I'm sorry, I did not mean to spend this much time on Chris Ferreira. I know some of you might think, hey, in those Tradcasts, you always talk about the same thing. Well, in a way, that may be true, but that's because it has to be said. And there are not a whole lot of other people saying it. The recognize and resist errors are so widespread and have impacted so many souls that we need to battle those errors and misconceptions constantly. The errors of Francis, on the other hand, at at this point, are identified by a whole lot of other commentators, bloggers, and journalists. But it's the errors of the false resistance position, in particular, the non-Seda Vacantis traditionalists, that most people swallow hook, line, and sinker. But, thankfully, more and more people are coming around. Please pray, for example, for the editor of the blog Vox Consolatoris. On March 10th, he published a post entitled Convicted by a Sedeva Contest, and we're linking that in the show notes, of course. Now, don't confuse Vox Consolatoris with the Canadian blogger Vox Cantoris. Those are two different individuals. I'm talking about Vox Consolatoris, who is starting to realize that Sedevacantism is indeed the only position that can square the empirical facts about Francis and the Vatican II Church with the Catholic teaching about the papacy, the church, and the magisterium. So please keep him in your prayers that he will become fully convinced and embrace the true faith with all its doctrines, including the doctrines about the papacy and all the rest. Vox Consolatoris is only one of many, though, who are starting to see the light. You can verify this for yourself, for example, by looking at a post of a distressed semi-trad at the misnamed Catholic Truth blog. On February 9th, the editor there published a post entitled, Pope Francis Causing Catholics to Leave the Church. Can you help them? Let me quote from this piece a little bit. Quote, I've had a number of telephone conversations recently, today included, with very worried Catholics who are either losing the faith themselves or who know others who are losing the faith because of the scandalous things Pope Francis is saying and doing. Some of these people made the mistake of investigating, i.e. searching online, for answers, and needless to say, some of them are now toying with all the wrong answers, notably Sedevacantism. In contacts with worried Catholics, I've given as much church history as it is possible to squeeze into a couple of hours of conversation, and I've quoted St. Vincent de Lerens in order to demonstrate the correct Catholic response to a bad pope, which is to resist his errors and cling to antiquity, that is, to Catholic tradition, while never doubting that Christ has kept his promise to be with his church until the end of time. Christ assured us that the gates of hell will never prevail." All right, so what we see here is pretty standard stuff from someone in the SSPX type recognize and resist camp. One thing I always find interesting is that these people scream at the top of their lungs that you must believe Francis is the Pope, but then in the next breath give you reason after reason for why that really doesn't mean anything. But anyway, this blogger is concerned that Catholics are leaving the church. 
You know, the very church that claims it's not identical to the mystical body of Christ, and already for that reason alone, cannot be the mystical body of Christ. I mean, if you're concerned about where the mystical body of Christ is, you can definitely scratch off the list of possibilities all those religions that don't even claim to be it, okay? Then the same blogger, I don't know his name, it's not given, he says that St. Vincent of Lerins has given the correct Catholic response to a bad pope, and that is cling to antiquity. Now, if only this very blogger could have done the thing he lambastes others for doing, namely searching online for answers, he would have found two blog posts on our site, novusordowatch.org, one of which refutes the misleading bad pope argument, and the other of which shows that St. Vincent of Laren's rule of clinging to antiquity was only to be applied in regard to unresolved doctrinal questions before the church makes a pronouncement. It was most certainly not meant as a rule to be used against the magisterium. And that's not me saying that. That's Cardinal Franzelin showing that this is the true meaning of the so-called Vincentian canon, which he proves from St. Vincent's own writing. We have both links in our show notes, so you too can see this for yourself. As far as the bad pope objection goes, it's simply apples versus oranges. There's an essential difference between a bad pope, meaning an immoral pope, and having a non-Catholic claiming the chair of St. Peter. Heresy, apostasy, and schism are sins which, if public, of their very own nature, separate one from the Church, as Pope Pius XII taught in his encyclical Mystici Corporis number 23. That is not the case with any other sin, and that's why arguing that Francis is a bad pope misrepresents the whole issue. He's not only a sinful man, he's a non-Catholic. And finally, the argument that the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, that is just it. That's exactly why we're sede vacantists. Because under any other scenario, the gates of hell have prevailed. I mean, look at the Novus Ordo Church. Look at it. You're going to tell me that that sorry institution has God's protection? That it is indefectible? That in it, as the First Vatican Council in 1870 taught, the Catholic religion has always been preserved, untainted, and holy doctrine celebrated? And there's a quote, yes, from Vatican I. You can look it up in Denzinger, 1833. You're going to tell me that Francis validly holds the Holy See in which, according to the teaching of Pope Pius IX, quote, religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow, and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion, unquote. I mean, is that an accurate description of the office held by Francis? By the way, we have an entire article on our site about the Catholic meaning of this whole the gates of hell shall not prevail promise. This article explains how the church understands this promise, what is meant by the gates of hell, and in what way they will not prevail. It's very informative. You won't regret reading it. So we'll link this for you as well in our notes for this episode, Tradcast 17. 
always keep in mind too, what do the recognize and resistors like this blogger offer as the alternative? They offer as the true church of Jesus Christ a church in which the highest authority can issue teaching documents and laws for all Catholics, and then we have to go to some retired lawyer in Virginia or find that journalist in New York or Minnesota or that bishop in Switzerland to straighten it all out for us, to tell us what parts of the documents or laws are acceptable and what parts are dangerous, heretical, abominable. And no, It won't do to say that, oh, but the bad stuff is not binding, it's not binding, because that doesn't save or solve anything. Like I illustrated using the analogy with the keg earlier, it doesn't matter whether it's proposed bindingly or not because the church cannot even so much as offer heresy to her children, even as optional. See, when the recognize and resistors say, We're not required to assent to this. What they really mean is we're not allowed to assent to this. They may not say that, but logically speaking, that's the position they have to argue because if they're right about what they're identifying as errors and heresies, and they typically are right about that, then it's not even permissible to assent to the junk that's put out by the Vatican these days. In fact, to put it mildly, you're putting your own soul in danger if you do assent. So the whole it's-not-binding argument is actually a red herring. It's not what they really mean, but it sounds better than arguing you're not allowed to adhere to this because now they're basically making a claim that is based on authority, their own putative authority, versus the putative authority of the modernist Vatican institution. So the next time you hear someone argue that the errors of Vatican II and the whole Novus Ordo apparatus aren't binding, respond by asking, Oh, they're not binding? So you're saying I'm nevertheless allowed to believe these things? I just don't have to? And see what kind of a response you get. Try it out sometime. You'll probably get, for a few seconds at least, no response at all and just a puzzled look. Yeah? Unfortunately, many of these people simply don't think things through. They never look at their position critically and say, does this make sense? I mean, look at Chris Ferrer from earlier in that video. He slams the Anglicans for having a human infallible church and then gives every reason to believe that what he calls the Catholic Church isn't any better. And he's right about the Novus Order Church, which is really just the Anglican Church from 60 years ago or so. Ferrer's problem is that he keeps identifying that abominable sect with the Catholic Church. And see how absurd it gets. On March 6th, Ferreira posted a short article at the Remnants website entitled Imploding Papacy Signals Triumph of Immaculate Heart. Now, do these people ever listen to themselves? Look at such an absurd headline. Imploding Papacy Signals Triumph of the Immaculate Heart. I'm sorry, but such a dumb and anti-Catholic title could only be published at the remnant. It could only be published by people who have long given up all belief in the Catholic teaching on the papacy. Now, obviously, Ferreira is talking here not about the papacy as such, but about the putative pontificate of Francis. That's clear. But that doesn't make it a whole lot better. The implosion of any pope's reign is a disaster for the church, not a good thing. And it certainly wouldn't indicate a triumph of our Blessed Lady. I mean, what a blasphemous thing to say. 
But these people are so blinded by their position, and they have so completely bracketed Siddhavakantism as even possibly correct, that they can utter such foolish, even anti-Catholic things without realizing it. All right, folks, we've covered a lot of ground here. Let's take a brief timeout. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Tradcast. Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming? One that addresses not only the current crisis in the church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member-supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic. If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Tradcast. Right, second segment. You are listening to a podcast that is triumphalist, bigoted, ideological, and everything else Francis hates. And I am the man with the perfect face for radio. Welcome back. Remember Jimmy Aiken, the indefatigable Francis explainer at the National Catholic Register? You know, the guy with the 11 things to know and share? (laughs) Well, guess what? He has been defeated. Defeated by Francis himself. Let me explain. Back in 2013, when Francis proclaimed that proselytism is solemn nonsense... Aiken rushed to his defense to argue that the term proselytism in post-Vatican II usage does not mean making converts, but rather has a technical meaning of using undue pressure or deceptive means to entice another to convert. And sure enough, he found a footnote in some obscure Vatican document that said so. However, if you recall, and we're linking all this info in the show notes so you can verify it for yourself, when Francis said that proselytism is solemn nonsense, we told you that he was not using the term proselytism in that technical sense, but rather in the sense in which it is commonly understood by everyone, including his interviewer, and that is simply seeking others' conversion to the true faith by means of arguments and evidence. Well, guess what? On March 9th, 
the German newspaper Die Zeit, published an interview with Francis in which Francis also speaks about proselytism, and this time the interviewer asks him to define what he means by it, what he means by that term proselytism. Now, what do you think? Do you think he defined it in the way Jimmy Aiken told you he was using the term? Or do you think he defined it in the way Novus Ordo Watch told you he was using the term? Drum roll, please. Correct. Francis vindicated us and refuted Mr. Aiken. Here's how Francis defined it verbatim. In German, he defined it as das Abwerben Andersgläubiger, which in English means the winning over of those of another faith. Bam! There goes yet another pope being all Catholic and all that. Uh, yeah, well, anyway, exit Jimmy Aiken and Michael Voris. All right, so originally, at this point, I wanted to go through a blog post by Steve Kellmeyer, a notorious Novus Ordo modernist. Well, he's he's considered Orthodox Catholic, but that just goes to show you what that label is worth nowadays. A post by Steve Kellmeyer entitled All Roads Lead to Rome, in which he tries to defend Francis's first Pope video that you may remember he published in January 2016 and that argued that people from different religions all worship the same God and that the only certitude we can really have in religious matters is that we're all children of God. It was a horrific and a very brazen advertisement for a one-world religion in which the different creeds are just insignificant flavors, if you will, of the same religious experience. It was a clear endorsement of apostasy, and Kellmeyer tries uh, to defend that in that post. Well, turns out there is a whole lot to say about that post and about what Kellmeyer wrote, and I just can't fit it into this episode today, so it'll have to wait until next time. The same, by the way, goes for a uh, an article by Ed Fieser that appeared in, I believe it was the February issue of Inside the Vatican magazine. We'll have a look at this very soon as well, but it won't be in this show. And then, oh yes, the fundraiser. Look, I'll make this very quick, okay, because I really don't enjoy talking about it, and you probably don't want to hear about it, so basically, here's the situation. This year, 2017, we need to raise a total of $50,000 to cover operating expenses for Novus Ordo Watch, okay? For a nonprofit organization, that's really not a lot. It's tiny, in fact. Um, but anyway, it's it's really going to take everyone chipping in, even just a little, to meet that goal, okay? We did great in February, but now it's March, and well, March is almost over, and it's Lent, hint, hint, and we uh, need to really all pull together to make this happen. Okay, now to make this fun for you, we're offering donor incentives. That is rewards for people who donate. These rewards are going to change every month. So there's always something different being offered every month. Okay, so it doesn't get old. Uh, now, for the most part, it'll be a, a book or a set of books if you give a certain amount. But we'll also have, at least later in the year, it really just depends on how 
uh, how fast or when I can put it together. Later in the year, other things um, are going to be offered as donor incentives like turbo auctions of hard-to-get books or everyone who donates regardless of the amount being entered into a raffle for a particular book or even collection of books. We'll see. So we're really going out of our way to make this fun for you, to encourage you to donate and uh, to reward you even materially for making that sacrifice. See, the matter is really simple. If you want to continue seeing great content on Novos Ordo Watch, keep in mind that great content is only possible with great support. And of course, it's tax deductible if you're in the United States. So that's an additional bonus for you, okay? You can make a contribution by going to novosordowatch.org slash donate or simply find the donate link in the show notes for this episode, Tratcast17 at tratcast.org. So let's all work together on this and spread the burden a bit. You know, we, we can't have only a handful of people giving a maximum amount and everyone else just saying, eh, that's all right. Others can pay for this. I'll just take the info for free. You don't want to be that guy. So go to novusordowatch.org slash donate, novusordowatch.org slash donate, and get rewarded in more ways than one. All right, enough of this. Let's get back to business. Oh, by the way, I have a question. I have a question for traditionalists in the recognize and resist camp, those who think that we can't say Francis isn't the Pope until there is a church judgment that says so. Let's say that all Novos Ordo bishops get together and condemn Francis for heresy and declare that he is a false Pope. Say that this happens, and Francis says, no, 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 you are all wrong. Your declaration is invalid. I, the Pope, declare that your decision is void, and I hereby excommunicate and depose all of you. All right, recognizing resistors, you obviously now have to make up your mind and go either with Francis or with the bishops. So here's my question. Will you use private judgment to decide? Checkmate, fellas. All right, there is so much to cover, so much to comment on, to analyze and refute. I could do this show all day long, and we still wouldn't get through it all. So I have no choice but to give priority to those things which I think are the most important. And I want to give you here that information which you probably won't hear anywhere else. Such as a response to a soliloquy against state of accountism by Michael Matt, editor of The Remnant, in his video entitled Papalatry R.I.P. Hope Ignites Counter-Revolution. The video was released on March 9th, and at the very end, the last five or six minutes, it says a few things about state of accountism that I think deserve a reply. But before we get to that particular part, I want to play something that Matt says a little earlier in that video. So here it is. We're at the 16 minute, 10 second mark. Here's Michael Matt. So now what? We need to stop wasting time arguing over the incidentals. For example, what name should we attach to the Pope Francis? 
Every little group has a different name. I want to call him an anti-pope. I want to call him the false prophet. I want to call him the actual antichrist. But this is ridiculous. We're solemnly assured every day by somebody online that Pope Francis is the false prophet of Revelation. Is he? Really? I mean, you know exactly what the false prophet of Revelation is going to look like and sound like? I, I don't. But I have this sneaking suspicion that the false prophet of Revelation is going to be just a tiny bit more seductive and cosmopolitan than Pope Francis. Now, this is the same thing Matt and his colleague Chris Ferreira said a few months ago. Who cares what label you use? Pope, anti-pope, what's it matter? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what label. Now, I addressed this in the last episode of Tratcast, Tratcast 16, at length, so I am not going to repeat it here. Plus, back in 2014, one remnant columnist already made that argument, and we rebutted it in our blog post, Is Francis a Valid Pope? Why it does matter. And we will link that for you. Suffice it to say that the very fact that the remnant can say that Pope or anti-Pope is just an incidental label reveals that they have no clue about or simply do not at all believe the Catholic teaching on the papacy. For them, it's just a label with no real meaning. Well, of course, the only way you can say such a thing is if you do not submit to the Pope anyway. It makes no difference to them if Francis is a pope or an anti-pope, because either way, they refuse him submission. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the textbook definition of schism. Now, by the way, why do you think that John Salza and Robert Sisko published a 700-page book against Sedevacantism last year? Because it doesn't matter? No, it's obvious that we're having a huge impact, and so they needed to put something together to counteract that. Well, too bad that they left out of account one little undesirable fact, and that is, most people will never read 700 pages. Now, heck, I'd be surprised if most people who bought this book even read 100. But let's not get sidetracked. This book is not what we're discussing now. Now, as far as whether Francis is the false prophet... As I said last time in Tradcast 16, I have no idea if he's the false prophet of the apocalypse. But if he isn't, then the real false prophet should sue him for identity theft. All right? No. But seriously, as long as we know that he's not the Pope, but an anti-Catholic charlatan, then that's all we need to know. I mean, you can speculate all day long about if he's the false prophet or not, but that truly doesn't matter. I do find it curious, though, that Matt says Francis isn't seductive enough to be the false prophet. Really? Well, he's got all the recognize and resist traditionalists fooled. I mean, they all insist he's the Pope, although they're quick to add that that doesn't mean anything. And so they're wrong on both counts. And by acknowledging him as Pope, they're giving him all his power. Yes, even though they resist and ignore him, it's the almost universal acknowledgement of this apostate as the Vicar of Christ, Pope of the Catholic Church, that alone suffices to give him all his putative power. So yeah, Francis has got them fooled big time. He's got them fooled by making it look like Benedict XVI and John Paul II were orthodox, even conservative Catholics. 
And the remnant is, of course, juxtaposing Francis now, not so much with pre-Vatican II popes as with John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Oh, and Francis has them fooled in as much as they think they haven't been fooled. I mean, goodness. You know, perhaps the worst kind of deception is the kind that makes you sit back and say, Ha! I escaped the deception. It didn't fool me. All right, let's fast forward briefly and go to the 18 minutes, 16 second mark, where Matt suggests this. I think that rather than debating where Francis might fit into the biblical prophecies, how about we all simply agree that this is the worst pope in history and pray for him every day and then do everything we possibly can in our power to undermine his efforts to uh, reform the Catholic Church? Because we know what he means by reform. Yeah, that's it. Let's all acknowledge him as the Holy Father and then work to undermine his program. This is incredible. Look, here's a quick little reminder from Pope Pius XII. Quote, They therefore walk in the path of dangerous error who believe that they can accept Christ as the head of the church while not adhering loyally to his vicar on earth. Unquote. And that's from the encyclical Mystici Corporis, number 41. Something to think about. Now, I know they'll say, oh, but we are being loyal. We're the loyal opposition. Yeah, except that that's not really what Pius XII had in mind here. I mean, anyone can say that. All right, there's one more soundbite we need to listen to from this video before we get to Matt's actual direct comments against Sedevacantism. I apologize that this is dragging on, but as you can see, it's important to address all this because these people have been preaching these errors for so many decades and largely unchallenged. And believe me, if we had the time, I'd love to go through the whole 25-minute video, but we just can't. So here we are at 19 minutes, 7 seconds. St. Athanasius, obviously, he didn't give up on the church when it was in control of the Arians. And neither are we going to give up on the church now when it's in the control of the modernists. We don't get to give up just because it's really, really bad right now. So let's get busy every day, everywhere. The message of Catholic tradition and Catholic restoration, we have to bring it to the fore. Mr. Matt, it's all interconnected. If Francis is the Pope, then his sect is the Catholic Church. Conversely, if the modernist Vatican institution is the Catholic Church, then Francis is its head. Or Benedict, for all I care. Say modernism, nicer-looking vestments. Nobody is asking anyone to give up on the Catholic Church. What we're talking about is abandoning an institution that cannot be, and therefore isn't, the Catholic Church. It's a false church eclipsing the Catholic Church, which, by the way, is admitted even by the remnant. Yes, even by Christopher Ferreira and Michael Matt, but only when it suits them, only when it's useful for the argument they're making. Don't believe it? Well, then I have a nice piece of evidence for you. On December 19th, 2015, the Remnant published a video on YouTube entitled Vatican Scandals, an appeal to Pope Francis to stop the madness. There's no need for me to quote what Matt and Ferrara said because I can simply play a soundbite from the clip so you can hear it from their own lips. This is the 16-minute, 42-second mark from that clip, Vatican Scandals. 
Like, this isn't the Catholic Church anymore. What is it? It's a massive, ongoing, now in its 50th year, fraud upon the faithful. A false religion being masqueraded as the Catholic religion. Uh, not in any official way, though. Ah, so what do we have here? Michael Matt says, this isn't the Catholic Church anymore. And Chris Ferreira adds that it is a false religion masquerading as the Catholic religion. Funny how that works, isn't it? See, they were arguing against the Novus Ordo uh, in that video, and so they said it's a false religion. But when they argue against state of Vacantism, all of a sudden, it's a different tune. You guys are abandoning the church. You can't give up on the church. Well, which church, Mr. Matt? Mr. Ferreira, the one you denounced in 2015 as not being the Catholic Church anymore? Is it that church we're talking about? Well, why shouldn't someone give up on a church that isn't the Catholic Church and, and that doesn't even claim to be the Church of Jesus Christ? And no, you can't turn a non-Catholic sect into the Catholic Church by means of some restoration or by writing petitions and open letters, or by having a little Latin mass niche at your local Novus Ordo parish. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you listened closely to the soundbite, you probably noticed that Ferreira added a little lawyerly caveat at the end. He affirmed that it was a new religion, but then added, not in any official way, though. And with this qualification, he thinks he can escape the logical conclusion that if it's not the Catholic religion or the Catholic Church, then obviously its head is not the Pope, and you can have nothing to do with that church or religion. Well, nice try, but there are two problems with that caveat. First, if it's not a new church officially, then it's not a new church at all. I mean, you can't play lawyerly tricks here. This is about the nature and identity of the Catholic Church, the true religion. This is about souls. What is a non-official church? Can anyone tell me that? Or do they now believe in the Vatican II doctrine of ecclesial elements? Does the Catholic Church perhaps exist in elements in the Novus Ordo Church? Or maybe the other way around? Or maybe one subsists in the other? Secondly, it's simply not true to say that this new religion wasn't imposed officially. Oh, it was official, all right. Let's see. What makes the new religion? We have, putatively, an ecumenical council, magisterial documents from popes, a code of canon law, canonized saints, a rite of mass and other sacramental and liturgical rites, even an excommunication declared to have been incurred by the Lefebvre's bishops, and plenty of other quite official acts of governance and teaching by these supposed Catholic authority. So, don't say it wasn't official. The Novus Ordo religion was imposed from the top down. It was as official as it gets. Now, Matt brings up St. Athanasius. He didn't abandon the church. Well, he didn't abandon the Catholic Church, but he sure had no communion with the Arian bishops. He wasn't part of some Arian church. Where Peter is, there is the church, and that's why the Pope issue is so important. And where the church is not, there Peter is not either. That is a logical implication. It all hangs together. 
and I'm not making this up, Pope Pius IX, in an allocution given to pilgrims on November 27, 1871, said this, quote, The Church can never be reconciled with error, and the Pope cannot be separated from the Church, unquote. You can look this up for yourselves, okay? Uh, this is found in the uh, fantastic reference work, Papal Teachings, The Church, by the Benedictine monks of Solem, which was published in 1962. The, the book is very hard to get, uh, but you'll certainly find it at the library of your closest diocesan, Novo Sordo Seminary, for example. And um, it's also available electronically at thecatholicarchive.com, thecatholicarchive.com. And also, we have an extra hardcover copy here that we're going to auction off at some point uh, as part of our fundraiser. So that will be your chance to get a hard copy. Anyway, the quote from Pope Pius IX is found in that book, and it's marked passage number 389. The Pope cannot be separated from the church. Okay? So, it all hangs together. You can't have just bits and pieces of Catholic doctrine here and there, you know, that you like or that you agree with while ignoring the others and, and then claim you're keeping the traditional faith. You can't do that. Oh, and by the way, if you're willing to accept a public apostate as a real pope, well, then don't be surprised if you get one. I mean, what are you complaining about? This is why I keep saying that regardless of what the intentions may be of the recognize and resist people, they're part of the problem. They need to finally abandon this nonsensical, absurd, and anti-Catholic position of theirs. Now, finally, let's get to Michael Matt's monologue that directly addresses Sedevacantism. It's about five minutes in length, so it's, it's a lot to go through, though I will not try to play every bit of it, uh, but only those parts that actually need addressing. So this is the uh, Papology RIP video, 19 minute, 29 second mark. Here's Michael Matt. And you know, you say to the contest before we close tonight, you say to the contest, you guys are good guys, and I don't want to start a fight with you. But you can either get on board with this or you can simply get out of the way. No, actually, there's a third option, and that is, well, just keep doing what we've been doing. And that's because we refuse to get on board with your false ecclesiology, your false traditionalism, your absurd ideas about the Pope, where the papacy is just a, a label that is ultimately meaningless, and so on. But if that's what you insist on doing, go right ahead. But we will continue to preach the real Catholic faith, including the doctrine of the papacy as it is found in the pre-Vatican II catechisms and dogmatic manuals. You know, somebody sent me a, 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 a recording of a leading Sedevacantus commentator who's going on and on about how Michael Matt knows darn well that Pope Francis is not the Pope but he's intentionally, intentionally covering up the truth in order to keep his base happy and continue to make money and keep, keep his prestige. Well, what an ugly and insulting and it's, it's calumny to say something like that. And this just simply isn't true. It's ridiculous. Now, this is interesting. You know, I really don't know what commentator and what recording he's referring to. But I cannot help but think that it's myself and this show, specifically the last episode, Trapcast 16. 
Now, if that's the case, if not, then please forgive me. You can ignore the rest. But if that's the case, folks, I ask you, listen to it. Listen to this last episode. Go to tratcast.org and scroll down until you see the link for Tratcast 16. Listen to it and see for yourself that I do not go on and on about Matt knowing that Francis isn't the Pope and intentionally withholding this truth in order to keep his base happy, continue to make money, and keep his prestige. And that's just not true. I say no such thing. At one point, I do say that, quote, they know better or could know better if they really wanted to, unquote, and I stand by that. But if you look at all the papal teaching I quoted in Tradcast 16, and really also in all the prior episodes of, of the show and all the material available at Novo Sardo Watch, then, then yeah, all of that is obviously data that they could have found on their own. Or maybe they do know about it and choose to ignore it. Well, but that's why I said, or they know better or could know better. Later in the same episode, episode 16, I mention that they've been less than sincere in some of their discussions on the issue, but that's because it was manifest. Like, you know, asking a question in a blog post and then deleting the answer given by me in the com box because they don't like it. And it was a brief answer, by the way, okay? Not something lengthy. So that's, I'm sorry, that's insincere. So anyway, it was all discussed in the last Tradcast. Now, I want to emphasize that I did not get into the question of motive at all. And honestly, I really don't care what the motive is. I don't care why the recognize and resist pundits like Matt, Ferreira, Venari, Salza, and all the rest, I don't care why they hold to their manifestly anti-Catholic position, because no matter what the reason is, it's not good enough. The best intention in the world cannot justify it. So I'm really not interested in motives. But this is a bit amusing, actually, because I remember that in the summer of 2005, The Remnant published a multi-part series against Sedevacantism authored by their chief polemicist, once again, Christopher Ferreira, with the provocative title, A Challenge to the Sedevacantist Enterprise. Now, the word enterprise obviously has, shall we say, economic overtones. Okay? The choice of wording here is needlessly ambiguous, and I think that most people would agree that enterprise implies or suggests an endeavor with a sought-after financial gain. And if that was the intent, to insinuate that Sidivacanists are in it for the money, then that is not only gratuitous, but also absurd. I mean, I can't think of a single Sedevacantist, not today and not back in 2005 either, who was making a killing by being a Sedevacantist. <laughs> hey, if there's a lot of money in this, could, could someone please let me know? Okay, because I've been doing it wrong then. It's hard enough to get people to donate even to a website like Novos Ordo Watch, where there is such a wealth of information presented. Fundraising, even for something like that, is quite difficult. So, hint, hint. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, I just wanted to point out that what seems to me like a, a bit of a double standard here. But, really, at the end of the day, motives are completely irrelevant. All that matters is which side has the truth. And with that, I hope we'll have forever moved on from this modus issue.
All right, back to where we stopped Michael Matt's audio. Next, he once again goes into what does it change to say Francis isn't Pope? And we've already addressed that uh, a little bit earlier and quite comprehensively in Tradcast 16, so we won't uh, get into that again. Now we're at the 21-minute, six-second mark. And we resist the novelty and the error that has no place, no precedent, no backing in the infallible teachings of Holy Mother Church. We're not, we're not resisting what we think is not Catholic. We can look at the teaching, the infallible teachings of the church. We can see these grotesque novelties coming out of the Vatican right now. I mean, we can't go along with that. Well, that sounds great, except uh, it's not an option for a Catholic, because a Catholic cannot pick and choose what he will accept from the Holy See. Now, obviously, a Catholic can discern that something contradicts the faith, but then he must conclude that the authority that issued it is false. On September 10, 1957, Pope Pius XII said in an allocution to the General Congregation of the Jesuits this, quote, Let no one take from you the glory of that rectitude in doctrine and fidelity and obedience due to the Vicar of Christ. Among your ranks, let there be no room for that free examination more fitting to the heterodox mentality than to the pride of the Christian, and according to which no one hesitates to summon before the tribunal of his own judgment even those things which have their origin in the apostolic see." Unquote. And you can verify that quote as well by checking the book I mentioned earlier, Papal Teachings, The Church, number... 1483. Back to the audio. Listen, I'm, I'm not going to go start my own church. I'm not going anywhere. Francis is not going to chase me out of my own church. If you guys want to go start your own church and crown your own popes and make yourself bishops, go right ahead. Just totally not interested from down here. Now this is priceless. Mr. Matt, you already have your own church, so to speak. It's the church of we don't care what the Pope says, we're not going to be told, we can resist whatever we want, we're just going to do our own thing. That church. And in that church, everyone is his own Pope, because the papal judgment, as these people confirm again and again, means nothing to them if they happen not to agree with it. We say de vacantes? No, we're not our own Popes. That's why we're called sede vacantists, as in the Holy See being empty. That's the whole point. And you know, Michael Matt is here going, ha, we're not crazy like you. We don't make our own bishops, when that's exactly what they do. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember an unauthorized Episcopal consecration on June 30th, 1988, that was Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre and Bishop Antonio de Castromayor consecrating four men, namely Alfonso de Galarreta, Bernard Tissier de Malaret, Bernard Fillet, and Richard Williamson. And then I remember another illicit Episcopal consecration on July 28, 1991, and that was Bishops Williamson, Tissier de Malaret, and de Galarreta consecrating Father Licinio Rangel for the traditionalists in Campos, Brazil. And then look at Bishop Williamson. I mean, he's been busy lately consecrating bishops. Bishop Jean-Michel Four, the Benedictine Bishop Tomas de Aquino, and on May 11th, he's announced he will consecrate Father Gerardo Zendejas a bishop. Now, don't say, oh, uh, that's the weirdo resistance. That's the priest that left the SSPX a few years ago. Well, that doesn't matter. 
They're still in the recognize and resist camp. They all believe Francis is the Pope. Or perhaps Benedict, I don't know. But they all acknowledge the Vatican II Church as the Catholic Church and its heads as popes. And you know how it is. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If it's okay to resist, then you can't say our resistance is okay, but their resistance isn't. It doesn't work that way. So yes, Mr. Matt, you guys do make your own bishops. And unlike us Sedevacantists, you do it against the explicit prohibition of the supposed vicar of Christ even. Right now, I'm surrounded by great Catholic priests who understand what's happening, who resist the novelties that are coming out of the Rome, right, out of the Vatican right now, who offer my children the old sacraments and keep my family and friends confirmed in the old faith. We're keeping the faith. We're not going along with this. Yes, Michael Matt believes he's keeping the faith, but the fact is that he continually denies Catholic teaching on the papacy, on the magisterium, and on the church. Okay, And he, he may think he receives the sacraments from, from faithful priests, but he's actually not, because the indult clergy that administer the putative sacraments to him aren't validly ordained. See, this is why these issues are so important. It's not that we want to be cantankerous and disagree about minutiae. No, this is all very, very acute. It really hits home. You're not even receiving valid sacraments, sir, and we want you to. We want you to receive valid sacraments. Once again, it all hangs together. Paul VI wasn't a true pope, and therefore he was able to promulgate sacramental liturgical rites that are not valid because God's protection, infallibility, was not with him, did not prevent him from doing that. And it won't do to just close our eyes and pretend or hope that it weren't so. And don't say that this idea that the new rite of Episcopal consecration, upon which, by the way, the validity of all other sacraments that require a valid priest depends, don't say that this is just some wacko out there sedevacantist idea. Okay. In fact, in the past, the Society of St. Pius X had plenty of doubt regarding the validity of Paul VI's ordination rite, the one from 1968 is what we call the, the new ordination rite. Um, and uh, that is so both for the priesthood and for the episcopacy. Now, not everyone in the SSPX, of course, but overall, it was by no means the case that the SSPX simply considered the new ordination rites valid. For example, in 1981, there was published an article by Father William Jenkins in the magazine of the SSPX's northeastern district, The Roman Catholic, questioning the validity of the new rite of priestly ordination and responding to SSPX lay apologist Michael Davies, who believed it was valid. Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the Society of St. Pius X, himself considered the new ordination rite for bishops to be doubtful. In a handwritten letter, which you can see in the link I'm going to give you, he said, quote, All sacraments from the modernist bishops or priests are doubtful now, unquote. And that he said in a letter to one Mr. Wilson dated October 28, 1988. So just check the, the show notes for that link. Then we also have the example of SSPX Bishop T.C.A. de Malaray, 
who said as far back as 1998 that he had doubt about the validity of the new rite of Episcopal consecration. And curiously, even today, he still considers the rite doubtful, even though the SSPX's official position has long changed. And just last year, Bishop Tissier said in a public sermon, quote, We cannot accept this new tampered-with ordination rite, which casts doubts on the validity of numerous ordinations done according to the new rite, unquote. That was June 29th, 2016, so less than a year ago. When did the official SSPX position change from invalid or doubtful to definitely valid? <laughs> well, just guess. It was in 2005. Now, do you remember what happened that year that would make them change course on that issue? That's right, the election of Joseph Ratzinger as Pope Benedict XVI. See, Ratzinger himself had been consecrated a bishop in the New Rite back in uh, 1977. And of course, the SSPX knew that if they were going to say that the Pope is not or may not be a bishop, well, that wasn't going to fly. That was not going to be pretty. Uh, they would have lost a lot of credibility with the mainstream and uh, the rapprochement with the Vatican would have been seriously damaged. Besides, it would have opened the doors to Sedevacantism because at some point people would have probably figured out that if Benedict XVI is not a bishop, well, maybe he's also not the Bishop of Rome. Anyway, so the SSPX position changed in 2005, and Father Anthony Ciccata, former SSPX priest and longtime Sedevacanist, has powerfully refuted all the arguments the SSPX came up with to try to prove the new right valid. We'll link our post on that in the show notes, which will give you all of Father Ciccata's articles as well as a video interview where he discusses the matter. So, sorry I'm a little uh, long-winded here, but this is a very serious issue, obviously, and a lot of recognize and resist people, like Michael Matt, don't take it seriously at all or not seriously enough. But we can't be ostriches here. It won't solve anything to just ignore the problem. So, next time someone from the semi-traditionalist camp asks you, well, what difference does it make if Paul VI was a real pope or not? Maybe just respond by saying that, well, for one thing, if he wasn't, then there's no guarantee that his revised sacramental liturgical rites are even valid. Back to the audio now. We're at the 22-minute, 31-second mark. So listen, in closing, whatever, whenever you hear folks claiming to have all of this absolutely figured out with angelic clarity... And then they start accusing their fellow traditional Catholics of malice and lying and intentionally withholding the truth about this easily seen, you know, situation in which we find ourselves in the church today. Friends, walk away from that. It's not that, that cut and dried. It's not that easy. They're good and beautiful people on all sides of this. And we need to find a way to bring everybody together and find the consensus, not with a phony middle ground sort of thing, but adhering to the old faith. Well, then do hold to the old faith, sir. That's all we're saying. Do hold to the old faith. And that includes the church's teaching on the papacy. And that's what I laid out at length in Tradcast 16. No, we don't have it all figured out. But just because we don't have all the answers doesn't mean we can't have some, even many. Michael Matt here is using emotion and addressing a straw man argument. 
I mean, back in December of last year in Tradcast 16, I explicitly said, quote, Now look, I know that Sedevacanus don't have all the answers either, unquote. And then I kind of elaborated on that. You can, you can just go back and verify this for yourselves. If you use the YouTube version to listen to Tradcast 16, it's the 55-minute, 44-second mark. And uh, if you're using uh, just the audio version on NovelSortOfWatch.org, it's the 55-minute, 13-second mark. So you can, you can just go back and, and listen to it. So Matt is just repeating a straw man argument here. Ironically, though, it's the semi-traditionalists of the recognize and resist camp that effectively claim to have all the answers, or at least they insist on having all the answers, else they won't be convinced. Which is exactly why they keep saying that, oh, you say to Varkantis, you can't even say how you would ever get a pope again. You can't say where the church's magisterium is and so on. So it's actually they who reject a position precisely because it doesn't have all the answers. So who's the one demanding to have all the answers here? See, at least the state of Akana's position doesn't have contradictions. It has open and unanswered questions, yes, we have mystery, but not contradictions like the semi-trads do. For example, they will simply dismiss or contradict the church's teaching on the binding nature of magisterial teaching, regardless of whether it's infallible or not, saying, well, this doesn't apply to our times, or, you know, diabolical disorientation, as though the church's teachings were subject to change depending on the times. That is modernism. So, my appeal to all non-Sedevacanist traditionalists out there is trust in God. You do not have to have it all figured out. We do not need to know how God is going to resolve this terrible situation. But we know that he can and we know that he will. So, don't say that you need to have all the answers first before you'll be convinced. And especially not if you're then going to accuse us of believing ourselves to have all the answers. What does St. Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.7? For we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, do it then. Have faith. Be courageous and accept all Catholic teaching and the consequences, no matter how undesirable, that follow from that teaching. Yes, there are many people of goodwill and pious people on both sides of this. Definitely. But remember what Father Frederick Faber said in the sermon for Pentecost Sunday, 1861, quote, We must remember that if all the manifestly good men were on one side and all the manifestly bad men on the other, there would be no danger of anyone, least of all the elect, being deceived by lying wonders. It is the good men, good ones, we must hope good still, who are to do the work of Antichrist and so sadly to crucify the Lord afresh. Bear in mind this feature of the last days, that this deceitfulness arises from good men being on the wrong side. Unquote. So here we see that this terrible situation we're in requires more than just goodwill. It will not be enough to simply mean well, so to speak, in order to escape the deceptions of the great apostasy of the false prophet and the Antichrist. Good intentions are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And of course, it requires grace. And that's one reason why it's so important to know whether the sacraments you're receiving are even valid. And let me add something very important here. 
I can assure you that for any people currently in the Recognize and Resist camp, if you make that step and become a state of Arcanus, please understand that there will not be a gloat fest on Novel Sword of Watch about it, okay? So don't think like there's there's going to be this big, oh, well, finally they figured it out or, or anything like that, okay? There will be no no humiliation, no mockery. On the contrary, what you will get is a friendly embrace that says, welcome home. So this really answers the remainder of Mr. Matt's video where he says a lot that I, I really don't disagree with. Yes, by all means, have all people of goodwill come together. But it cannot be at the expense of Catholic teaching. And it cannot be at the expense of valid sacraments either. You know, one thing I forgot to mention earlier is that the same principles that Pope Leo XIII used to declare Anglican orders invalid are the same principles that also prove that Novus Ordo ordinations are invalid. So, this stuff is serious. And for all those who are pondering what I've said here and are now asking themselves what to do, well, we have an important link for you in the notes entitled, Now What? How to Be a Real Catholic today. And I very much encourage you to click on that for just some very helpful general information. And so in summary, let me say that the recognize and resist traditionalists may have a pope, so-called, but we say to Vaconists have the papacy. They gave up the papacy to have a pope, as it were. They attached greater importance to having a tangible, visible person they can point to as the pope, than to retaining the correct Catholic understanding of the papacy. And now, in reward for their unfaithfulness, no matter how well-intentioned it may have been, in reward for their unfaithfulness, they actually have neither. Neither a true pope nor the true Catholic teaching on the papacy. My dear friends in Christ, I hope this was informative and helpful for you. Thank you for listening. Please spread the word. And, hey, please remember that fundraiser. Wink, wink. Until next time, God bless you. Cast.